2: Welcome to the New Books Network. You realize that for the last, I don't know, 3,000 years, we have been living in a world of scribal schools.
1: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backward to see into the future. Our idea is to assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events by looking at the books that shaped the world we inherited. Today, the hosts are Elizabeth Ferry. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, John. Noted anthropologist, Elizabeth Ferry. And me, John Plotz. Hello, me. And we are joined today by Martin Puckner. Hello, Martin. Thanks for Uh, having me. great to have you and you are, I will tell you, the Byron and Anita Wien professor of English and Comparative Literature at Harvard University. Uh, you're the editor of the Northern Anthology of World Literature, the author among many books of the Written World, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, and Civilization, published by Penguin in 2017. Okay, so welcome, Martin, to our miniature sound-insulated bar. Um, Think of yourself as grabbing a tumbler of your favorite amber liquid or maybe a carafe of your favorite amber liquid and getting ready to banter, okay? I'm ready. You feel (laughs) banter-ready? You look banter-ready. You look like banter-weight. Okay, so we're going to hear more about the specifics of your book, Martin, The Written World, in a few minutes. Um, But I just want to start by noticing that this is, in effect, um, that what your book does is, in effect, a meta version of what our podcast tries to do. That is, we try to isolate single books and understand how they resonate with the present world. But you actually go whole hog, and you put our entire modern culture, as it were, under the shadow of books. So you want to explore how the technology of writing developed over centuries, and the ways that sometimes with our without our even noticing or acknowledging it, its basic assumptions shape us. Um, so that's, you have meta us, and we appreciate that. So with the pleasant prospect of turning to hearing about your book shortly, Martin, um, we want, actually want to start today um, with Elizabeth talking about one of the oldest books out there. So Elizabeth, turning over to you.
0: Okay. Nice, nice to meet you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I want to start um, by talking about uh, one of the texts that Martin discusses in the earlier part of his book, um, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I want to focus. This is my contribution for the week. Um, a particular translation, um, or actually, it's known as a new rendering in English verse uh, by David Ferry. No relation. Just kidding. It's my dad. <laughs> By my dad, um, and um, it's the law of the father. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, in a second, I'm going to read you just a few lines from it. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about the about the book, The Written World, is the sense that it conveys of um, literature and writing, and particular bundles of writing, as contributing to a kind of um, I don't know transtemporal society of writing, you could talk about it. Maybe you could talk about it as a kind of fabric of writing. Um, And I think that my um, father's work, and particularly Gilgamesh, has been a um, really good example of that. I sometimes um, sort of say to my father that he... In the same way in which you might find architectural salvage stores in kind of hipstery neighborhoods that have like all kinds of little features from houses and stuff, um, that his specialty is poetic salvage. And I have to say,
2: I I love this rendering uh, of your father's. I find it very moving that (laughs) it's your father who did it. And I would say it's my mind is much more than salvage, it's really complete renovation, gut uh-huh. renovation <laughs> of the mm. Gil- <laughs> or Gilgamesh because it comes across in this version as such a readable, such a, in some sense, familiar sound because of the ionic uh, pentameter. Uh-huh. So yeah. I think it's a, it's actually a great example of a
1: complete renovation. Well, that's yeah. great.
0: I like the gut renovation idea. Yeah, yeah and I think the,
1: Though I kind of want to put a footnote down to cut back to the question of sound, because one of the things I really like about what you do with the question of writing, Martin, is that you make us think twice about the possibility of sonic or acoustic preservation, because things can be preserved in writing that are Mm. like it's like the non oral side of the language that gets saved. So what Mm -hmm. it means to save the sound, which. I'm not saying you can't say the sound. You definitely can. But uh, it it is interesting because uh, I think about writing as going to the far end of language away from the sound. So,
0: hmm. yeah. I wonder if meter would be an interesting yeah, sort of that's right. bridge for that, right? Because it's kind of encoded. Sound is encoded into the question of meter.
1: That's right. And I feel like there's a lot of Latin words that we know how to pronounce only because we have them in poems that uh-huh. tell us what yeah. the uh-huh. metrical rule was. Yeah, it's a good point. That's okay there's so much to connect there to what your book is about, Martin, but um, maybe we can just, um, you know, pivot here and say, um, you know, you've written this amazing book, which there's so many things about it I would love to talk about. I'd love to talk about the stages of writing that you describe, because you have a really subtle argument that you lay out right at the beginning of this book, which is enormously accessible, but also is arguing on a number of levels. And so you have this... um, argument where you take us through the different stages that you see writing uh, having gone through to bring us into the modern age. Um, so I'd love to talk about that, but maybe there's also a direct connection to the Gilgamesh stuff that you want to?
2: Yeah, talk. I mean, the epic of Gilgamesh for me, is it's the beginning of my story. I try to tell the story of literature, really, which I understand as the intersection of oral storytelling and writing technologies. And since Mm -hmm. Mesopotamia is the place where the first writing system was developed, where that first crossing of oral storytelling and writing technologies happened, it makes sense that the first great written piece of literature in in, in world literature came from that part of the world, came from Mesopotamia. And so Mm -hmm. the epic of Gilgamesh is that for me. And what's so crucial about it is that from the beginning, it presents itself as a written text. And that's Mm -hmm. very different from later epics, like the Homeric epics that present themselves Mm -hmm. as being sung orally. The world of both Homeric epics is a world without writing, with one small exception. And so Mm -hmm. it's really a very oral world, even though it's much later. But this much earlier text, first epic, the epic of Gilgamesh, really is very clear about being written down, that this is a Mm -hmm. world that invented writing, that that's a great achievement of this culture. And so Mm -hmm. really fully embraces writing in a way that's very exciting for me. Mm.
0: I think you really get at that um, very inventively by kind of telling the parallel story of how the writing was decoded in the 19th century and how that sort of um, the, you know, I mean, that's sort of a, it's a trope that we have read in kids' books and so on, but sort of the way in which you you link it to these questions of the fundamentalness of the of the written word and of and of this as writing is really effective, I think and that story of the
2: rediscovery really speaks to one feature that's so important. I mean, that writing endures, that it starts a kind of sense of history where you can discover old texts and mm-hmm. know that you in some way, through writing can speak to the future. And that's uh, very clear in one of the biggest fans of the epic of Mm Gilgamesh, the much later King Ashurbanipal, who finds these tablets and starts to read them and thinks of them, is so amazed by the fact that they are so ancient from before the flood, he says. And then he also imagines that they will endure into the future, and they did. Al- although they almost disappeared, they were right. discovered really by accident in the nineteenth century in deciphered. In the so it really, it, it's that it's a very atypical example in some sense that a piece of literature that was so important disappeared for two thousand years mm-hmm. and then reappeared.
1: And Mart, in that context, what's the significance of the fact that we have Gilgamesh in these two entirely different languages? That it's that it's that some of the stories are preserved in one language. Uh, group and then others in a later language. Like Do we imagine that as telling a story about how dead languages can keep procreating even you know, back in the early days? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the yeah. fact that the whole concept of a dead language was
2: really a, a kind of inadvertent byproduct of writing. Of there writing. were no yeah. dead languages yeah. mm-hmm. before writing because if a language died, it died. It, it, was uh, not, it was no longer and, there. We be
0: uh, called dead, right? Yeah.
2: Exactly. So, so. Uh, but what's interesting about the writing system, cuneiform writing, is that because it wasn't phonetic, it could be used for different languages. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. So there are these early Sumerian songs, mm-hmm. the earliest layer of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then the, the later Akkadian ones. But they all used the same writing system.
1: Yeah. And how does that get to that question that we raised earlier or that I was tugging on earlier about sound? So you're saying that the sounds were not preserved. That's
2: right. I mean, that's the for me, the interesting part of the story is what happens when the alphabet... Emerges and the alphabet Mm -hmm. is, you know, for us it's such a familiar. It's so clearly much easier than a writing system like the cuneiform, uh, uh, the the cuneiform system, or other logographic systems where you have hundreds of signs. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the alphabet was really. A kind of conceptual breakthrough because all the earlier writing systems had a connection between the signs and concepts, and right. and um, what basically had to happen with the alphabet is that you had to sever writing from meaning. You would chop up words mm-hmm. into meaningless sound entities and then recombine them. And so there's something that happens in that was first developed in Phoenicia in today's Lebanon and then was perfected in mm-hmm. Greece. So the first sort of fully sound poem in a way were the ones that were preserved in alphabetic languages.
0: Although it's interesting like it, it seems both potentially like a breakthrough in a kind of progressive sense, but but something is lost too, right? Because, you know, for instance, I mean, and it's not completely lost, like we see this in Chinese, right? That there's, you know, right. different, same writing system, which is, a, you know, concept-based right. writing system. Um, and then people who would never be able to understand each other speaking face-to-face have right. this complete kind of transparency through the right. written word. Right.
2: Now, and in, in East Asia, my... Example for that is what's called brush talk, mm-hmm. where the Japanese would send emissaries to to China, and they couldn't mm-hmm. understand each other orally, but they could speak by using the Chinese signs mm-hmm. because they both used these Chinese signs, so they con- con- could communicate that way. The way we might communicate with someone else who. Whose language we don't speak but who uses the same arabic numerals right we could right. negotiate with someone by right. by by writing numbers on a piece of paper because uh-huh. these numbers are
1: not f- phonetically coded but abstract symbols right. Right. right except nowadays we do the same thing by talking into google translate and holding true. your <laughs> cell phone <laughs> up to <true>. each other <laughs> right. so i just i just want to say tablet right <laughs> it's true it's the new yeah. kind of tablet but i guess in terms of uh, one of the other briefs of the podcast is to try to figure out where we are in you know 2019 where these writing technologies are so just um i hope we we circle back to that question of the visibility of writing that you're describing because in some ways one way to think about what's happening now is that we have all of this invisible writing that is like all this code which is written to -hmm. tell our computers what to do so somebody wrote it it's in language but then it become it Become subterranean, so mm. that everything we're surrounded by has all sorts of writing in it, which is inaccessible to us. So, hmm. um, so Martin, can you talk? A, can you talk a little bit more about the historical stages that you mm. that you see? Um,
2: yes, and what was important for me is basically to defamiliarize our our conception of how literature is produced, namely by professional authors mm-hmm. who invent new stories, original mm-hmm. stories, and then bring these stories to a mass audience or an audience through print or other methods of, of replication. And what's so striking is that for the first D- two, three thousand years in the story of literature, it's a very different form. There aren't really authors. There are uh, scribes, and scribes don't invent stories. they collect them and mm-hmm. arrange them and preserve them mm-hmm. and collate them mm-hmm. and frame them and that, them. accumulate them. <laughs> They're these producing these kind of story bundles or text bundles, mm-hmm. um, like the epic of Gilgamesh or the, the Hebrew Bible or, or later. Uh, uh, story collections like the Arabian Nights and others,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: or or famous anthologies like the Norton Anthology, for instance, <laughs> exactly. right? It's true. That's yeah. true. But <laughs> right. also
1: famous anthologies like the Bible, too, right? right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. So I I want to pick up on the word that you use, Elizabeth, curate, because I feel like that's a very much a word of the moment yeah. now. Like <laughs> we live in a society in which content creation is cheap, but curating is valuable. Like uh-huh. what you you know the the um, the people who have their hands on the levers of power yeah. are not the people. Who produce the words originally, but the ones who distribute them? You know, it's when Amazon chooses, or at to least serve they you. try to, make
0: or they that try claim, to claim. Right, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I think that's but, a. It's an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing
1: struggle. That's true. So, yeah, can you can you talk more about that? Um, do you think of those scribes as doing an act of conscious curation? Because it seems to me when you bundle, you know, it could be bundling because it's a job. You're aggregating. Or it could be bundling where you're really making meaning from the way that you bundle stories together.
2: Oh, I definitely think, I mean, that was mm-hmm. their main job, I would say, to make meaning through selection and combination and framing and presentation and I I think you're so right that the same mode has now come back and I would say precisely because that standard modern system of production I just described with professional authors who invent Mm -hmm. original stories is now with our media revolution breaking down and to some extent we get these older versions coming back and the Mm -hmm. primacy now placed on curation I think is an example of that Mm -hmm. that we again are moving into a world where there aren't these professional it's not dominated by these professional authors who have complete control Mm. over their stories there's all this kind of writing and material out there and what really matters is how to collect and frame it and filter and present it mm-hmm. right. curated yeah. yeah
0: although I would again maybe feel like that's I mean so if we could think of that process by which you know kind of authorship is becoming democratized then it's in the interest of certain people to say, "Oh, wait! It's actually the curating that's valuable. It wasn't the writing." You know, as soon as more people can write, suddenly.
1: Oh, right. Um, so you're you're basically putting pressure on the question of what value means there. Yeah. Because there's a yeah. world of kind of proliferating I mean, uh, slash fiction, or and you know right, all these and, and there's forms a there's a um,
0: you know a sort of um, dethroning of certain kinds of publishing houses or other kinds oh, of I see. things. Right? So in
1: other words, once publication becomes democratized, it loses value.
0: And therefore, yeah. There needs to be these sort of niches. I mean, the the parallel. uh, I wouldn't want to join
1: to any club that would have me as a member. Basically, maybe yeah. yeah.
0: Or the parallel might be like, um, okay, as financial information becomes you know more widely accessible, um, then you need to have people who are portfolio managers, right? They're right. the ones who, you know, and suddenly the expertise is not understanding a particular company. It's, oh, no, 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 you have to understand how these things go together, which is yeah. a form of cur- curation.
1: Right. Though, though, Martin, for in terms of the work you did about the scribes, do you get a sense of the scribe as existing in a kind of elevated social status? Like, are they? Mm. Is that a priest class? Yeah, it's not necessarily priests,
2: but sometimes they are. But definitely elevated. Uh, it was one, wonderful for me to read some of these earliest uh, uh, fragments from scribal schools, mm. where you get, uh, um, you know, we're talking about three thousand years ago. You get students complaining about their teachers, saying, "Oh, my teacher was <laughs> too hard on me. My teacher beat me. My teacher, you know, yeah. is a taskmaster." <laughs> and and you also have, and I think we as teachers can sympathize with that. Fragments from teachers saying, "You know, this generation of students <laughs> is not taking things <laughs> as seriously Bunch as of we lazy used so to." Uh, exactly, <laughs> and so uh, you get. Uh, so it, you know, you realize yeah. that for the last I don't know three thousand years, we have been living in a world of scribbles schools yeah <laughs> so, uh,
0: yeah that's then, funny. so that's then you,
1: the next stage in your argument and forgive me Martin if I butcher it but that you are interested in this sort of great teacher moment and I think you think about uh, probably um it's Socrates right and mm-hmm. um I imagine and the Buddha, Confucius, Confucius, Confucius and, Buddha, yeah, and Jesus and Jesus right mm-hmm. and so there I, the int- if i if i understand the quirk of your argument which i really like is that the teacher is presented as anti-writing in some ways like there's oral mm. charismatic presence of the teacher and yet of course you know as with the story of socrates and plato we only get them because somebody writes them down right. mm. so. and so
2: for me the interesting thing is that these teachers these charismatic teachers live in some of the most literate cultures of their time yeah mm. so they could have written and they chose not to and they yeah. as you say they really base everything on the primacy of the spoken word, this live interaction with their students. And Mm -hmm. of those, Socrates makes the most explicit argument against writing, that you can't control it, that you can't Mm -hmm. ask follow-up questions. There's Mm -hmm. lots of scope for misinformation, very similar to the wars we now have about the internet, uh, um, Mm -hmm. that there's fake news through Mm -hmm. writing, and so on and so forth. And so that's how they operate. So it's really almost a moment as writing takes, takes over more and more functions of these societies there's this moment of panic or moral worry or thinking about... So is it, it a backlash argument then? I think it is to some extent a backlash, yes. Hmm. But then the interesting thing is, as you point out with Plato and others, that the teachers die. Yeah. And mm-hmm. for some time, usually there's a, a, a tradition of oral transmission. In mm. the case of Socrates, almost mm-hmm. immediate turn of writing. But sooner or later, these students... In a sense, betray their teachers. They use writing even though their teachers had not. And then the students write down Mm -hmm. their master's words. So the interesting th- thing, though, is that these texts these students produce are very different from these older scribal texts, because I think these students try to preserve some, fo- some of that live interaction. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. In a sense, some of that rejection of writing in right. these texts. So they produce like, Plato-dramatic dialogues, mm. they show mm-hmm. the back and forth between sh- teacher and students, they describe these situations mm-hmm. in a way, they almost as if they channeled that. Or resistance.
0: sermons, they, they write down sermons. A Exactly.
2: Right. But also in the case of Jesus, there are lots of, you know, conversations, dialogues right. with followers. So it, to me, it's almost as if they channel that resistance, that panic, that skepticism, this this Luddite uh, yeah. attitude towards yeah. writing back into writing and produce these very vivid, anecdotal, dramatic, dialogic texts. Mm-hmm. So then what mm-hmm.
1: do you make of the kind of overt intertextuality of the New Testament with the Old Testament, the way in which the the words, the words of Jesus, as recorded, or the words of the you know original sages of the New Testament, are also consciously looking back at you know the antitype of the of the Hebrew Bible that went before. Yeah, I think it's one of the most
2: fascinating moments in literary history because, right, you have Jesus who doesn't write, who yeah. presents himself as the fulfillment of the scripture, right. but who doesn't produce his
1: own mm. scripture. Does and, Jesus himself give evidence of knowing the? The Hebrew, sure he does. Yes. Okay. so he
2: knows the Hebrew Bible. Uh-huh. He's mm-hmm. learned it. Yeah. He
1: knows how to write.
2: There's yeah. one scene in which he writes something in sand, uh, but that's the only moment of, of writing, mm-hmm. and then the huh. wind blows it off, and we're huh. the the the, the uh, we don't know what he right. writes. Right. And which is so, itself
0: a criticism of writing, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so. But then his followers, of course, produce texts. But texts, at 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 first, as I said, try to capture this vivid, uh, uh, you know, sermonizing, dialogic, Mm -hmm. charismatic figure who didn't Mm -hmm. write. But then, as Christianity develops its own identity and splits off from Judaism, it more and more these texts acquire the the status of a new sacred scripture. And then the question is, how will they relate to the older scripture? And that's where you get the Old Uh, Testament and the New Testament. And so over time, they acquire that status, but not initially. Initially, they're just uh, student writing about their charismatic master. But Mm -hmm. so could
1: you say qualitatively that that moment of the intertextuality between the old and new is akin to the bundling of stories that the scribes are doing before? Or is it of a different order?
2: So I would say that you can describe what we would call the New Testament as itself a bundle of stories because it's, you know, it's the gospels, it's Paul's Mm -hmm. letters, it's and so on and so forth. It's a bunch of different kinds of texts. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me the suitoring of these of this new corpus of texts back. Uh, to the old then what what now is called looking backwards from this Christian the perspective, old the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah. That's a very unusual and, and kind of unique uh, uh, moment. Uh, mm. You don't have that with the texts of the other master teachers. You don't have Buddhist texts trying to reconnect themselves mm. to their vedas mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. you have mm. it to some extent maybe in the te- in the uh, in the confucian traditions because there you have students of the of confucius writing down his texts but mm-hmm. then interestingly confucius because he becomes so important is retroactively seen as the editor of one of the first a fundamental text of mm-hmm. the Chinese literary tradition, mm-hmm. I mean, the classic of song, even though he didn't write them and he didn't edit them, but mm-hmm. stories circulate that he is the yeah. editor, and so that's why we call them Confucian classics. So maybe that is something to some extent similar uh, yeah. to that's what really you have interesting. with the New Testament and the Old Testament.
1: Yeah. Um so I kind of want to pivot at this mm-hmm. point to say that, you know, we you end your book, Martin, by saying that a second revolution in the written world is upon us. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to um, make that the occasion for like the final section of this podcast in which mm-hmm. we think about what it means uh, for that new revolution to come. I mean, you already heard my point about computer code as a form of writing, but I think there's a lot of ways that we could think about mm-hmm. this new electronic age we're in. So um, can I can I yield the floor to you on that yeah. question? Yeah.
2: Definitely. and And, you know, I basically, the motivation for my book was the experience we are living through that we live through this fundamental revolution in writing technologies and we feel that it has profound impacts and mm-hmm. i wanted to in a sense to get some orientation some guidance from the past what were earlier moments when similar revolutions happens of course with print but also with paper and smaller revolutions along the way so that's very much what's the motivation sort of the prehistory of that and um and what was interesting for me is that I see now some of the older modes of writing and the organization of the written world coming back. We just spoke about the the, the return of editing or mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. curating, powerful mm-hmm. curators, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. But there are others too. I mean, you know, we we started this podcast with the with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is written on these clay tablets, tablets. Went out of fashion, were replaced by scrolls and the Roman invention of the Codex, which we know by the book. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, for the first time, we're using tablets again. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I have images of ancient scribes who are sitting cross legged with. Looking down at the tablet in their uh, in, in their lap and you know, mm-hmm. if I squint outside the door here in the library, I bet I can not find someone who's sitting right yeah. in that same pose with the
1: tablet.
0: Yep. But does <laughs>
1: that doesn't that doesn't feel like a little bit of a just a a, a shallow rhyme to you though? Because those tablets are so protean, whereas the point about the, those earlier tablets was that they were so fixed.
2: Yeah, but it's it's a question about formats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other format that has come back is the scroll. The yeah. scroll mm-hmm. was more or less replaced by the book, and we mm-hmm. are scrolling down computers. Yeah. Yeah. Like really yep. Including on right. these tablets. Yeah. Yeah. So in part because computers and code text as a continuous yeah. Yeah. line yeah. of text rather than splitting it up. Yeah. into pages. Yeah. Can, and it of course, changes
0: our bodies and our ways of seeing. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. So I
2: do think that the, the these formats and these forms actually do matter. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not to say that there's a lot that's new, but it, I've been struck yeah. by the fact that just the, the way our bodies relate to mm-hmm. reading devices and, and forms, mm-hmm. that there there's some something from the deep history of writing that yeah. has suddenly come
1: back so so now I'm just remembering dimly from college hearing a lecture by Peter Stalybros in which he was saying that the invention of the codex the you know the book with a spine was a revolution in discontinuous access you know that the point is that the scroll you have to gives turn you the page. yeah right so no no not that you have to turn the page that you can go anywhere so that you get people jumping back and forth oh, so the in, oh, I see. that oh, the yeah, index yeah. basically like, evolves at the same time yeah. that the yeah,
0: yeah, that yeah. the book does yeah.
1: so um, but by that logic, it seems like the electronic writing we have is, a con- is is like intensification of that discontinuous access. I mean, I hear what you're saying about scrolling, but the thing to me about... in, in The
0: searchable in, index. Yeah, like there, the right?
1: searchability yeah. of the way that the hyperlinked logic of reading on uh-huh. a screen is that you're continuously able to just jump to some other place in the text.
2: It's. I think it's both. I mean, I've certainly had the experience of having to, you know, needing to jump forward in a, on a computer and having yep. to scroll through, especially in some cases where you have to, uh, where it simulates books and maybe it's a, you know, the computer's a little slow and you have yeah. to think, oh, my God, I wish I could just take the physical book and right. flip yes. forward and just yes. do it. Although, right. of course, with the index, you have searchability. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm
1: just thinking of Control-F. I mean, yeah. Control-F for me is like, you know, that's a <laughs> habitual movement. It's yeah. like, I want to find the that next your time. Move. Yeah. <laughs> like, tell me the next time the word papyrus shows up right, in this text. Right, so, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's both those things. Yeah. So, this is the moment, I think, in the podcast when we switch to um, what we call recallable books. So, we basically <laughs> ask you uh, each of us is going to say a book, you know, given the nature of this conversation, a book that we think would be, um, you know, the kind of thing that somebody who enjoyed this podcast might want to go off and read. Mm-hmm. So, Martin, as our guest, can I offer you first shot?
2: Well, In the spirit of this conversation, I'm not going to recommend a book because a book, John is from the past age of literature. We've now entered a pay, an age with um, fan fiction. I know. Where, where, that was where so everyone, 2018 of me, I'm where, sorry, know. yeah. <laughs> where <laughs> everyone is an author, so I'm gonna recommend a website, uh, Wattpad. Wattpad okay. start, is a is started, It's a Canadian website. It's now in every country except yep. China. Uh-huh. Um, and it started as a fan fiction <laughs> yeah. site and is primarily used originally by teenagers, often female teenagers or people who pretend to be teenagers. <laughs> and and it started as a fan fiction site, but it's grown and exploded into a story-telling universe. And there are all kinds of stories that are being written by users, by readers, yep. by mm-hmm. people who don't necessarily think of themselves as authors in the Gutenberg sense yeah. and mm-hmm. who generate stories and I've amazed I'm amazed how widespread it is. I was talking about it uh, in my in a graduate seminar a, f- a few weeks ago, and one of the one of the students said, "Oh yeah, my mother has two novels on on Wattpad." Yeah, well. And so it's it's really and now some of these because this website has grown so much, it has so many users that the top stories get big book deals, they get Netflix tie-ins. It's mm. become huge and mm-hmm. the website what's fascinating to me is that the website people running the website uh, they have an unbelievable have unbelievable data about storytelling and different kinds yeah. of stories and the way mm-hmm. readers interact with stories. So I think there's all, it, it, it both registers how storytelling and who produces stories and how we use them and interact with them and how we distribute them and circulate them changes. But I think it will also, the analytics of it, will actually tell us a lot about storytelling in the future. <laughs> mm.
1: So you can post in any language? It's in many languages. Yeah. It is, yeah. And are they translated? Do people read things in other languages, or do they do you just I'm stick to your own sure. language I, community? That's or? a
2: good question. I'm not sure about translation. Yeah. Mm. I'm not sure how
1: that works. That is fascinating. Mm. Okay. Bit.
0: So I'm also going to go in the fan fiction route and I also not suggest a book, uh, but it's a particular fan fiction story, uh, which is called No Reservations Narnia, which is the Anthony Bourdain, an imagined Anthony Bourdain episode <laughs> in, in Narnia, um, which kind of brings together both <laughs> this. Like, Do they eat wood yeah. <laughs> um, no, but they uh, they do dine with werewolves, you know, because they have this, you know, he's sort of having all these ceremonial dinners and they're super bland and starchy yeah. and then finally he meets a werewolf who takes him to the, you know, cuz there's always the in Anthony Bourdain there's always the moment the dark towards the wild, right? Mm. So um uh, but you know, so that's sort of both an example of this collectivity that we're describing and also the creation of a world and and how it might get um, literarily inhabited.
1: Okay, so this is great. So you guys have backed me into the opposite corner. So <laughs> I was gonna recommend, and I still recommend, it's a great book, uh, a book by Daniel, uh, sorry, Dennis Tenen called Plain Text, The Poetics of Computation, which is basically a book about um, thinking about computer code as a form of writing. Mm-hmm. but. Given this um, uh, world of Wattpad and the proliferation of these stories belonging to us all, I'm going to endorse the opposite, which is something I heard about on a podcast recently, something called the Broudigan Library. Do you okay. guys know this? As
0: in Richard Browdigan.
1: As in Richard Brautigan. So okay. Richard Browdigan, in one of his novels came up with the idea of a library in which people deposited single unique books that were not meant to be published and reproduced. They were just meant to sit in that library. So in other mm. words, you bring the wow. object itself and it sits in a room um, and that then becomes the library. So it's like library as site of anti-publication. So, mm. so you go for you, 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 okay. you, you go to a room in which the only thing you know about these books is that they only exist in this space. So um, you guys both look in- intensely skeptical, but no, it's a different way of thinking about skeptical. writing. I think it's yeah. like the, it's like singling out the one place in the world that this writing exists. Yeah. So um, I mean, in a, in a sense, maybe you can actually think of it as a curation. So it be, it's a curation experiment, here, here's right?
0: Here's a question: Would it be but not would curation is achieve...
1: promulgation? Curation is right. containment, right?
0: Yeah. Would it achieve its? Would the Browdican Library achieve its goal even better if there were no readers?
1: Um. Huh. Uh, say more. You mean well, because if it were just going down a black hole? Well, or,
0: if we're if we're continuing on this kind of salvage it's idea, it's like enter the
1: singularity. Of, yeah, sort of. Right. Yeah.
0: Like if you, you know, well, that the would be the potlatch
1: that, version where you brought it and burned it. You know,
0: sort of, but. Then you would still be in some kind of relationship with the text, even if you brought it. But there's something about, uh, you know, we've, we keep talking about how people are reading things or hearing things and then, they're, and then they're doing something with them. So this is the going there and nothing is done with it. Or, or that's my question, right? Is it, if it had no readers, would that be more what, what it was trying to do?
1: It's a super good question. I don't know. Like, my vision of it is that it's attractive to people because of its one-offness. So that's why it Mm -hmm. still feels like a curatorial project because Mm -hmm. the curation there is kind of like the Museum of Jurassic Technology or something. Like, Mm -hmm. it's the the thing that might have been out in the world but actually isn't. It's only here mm-hmm. so it's um y- you know that uh like in the 19th century a lot of museums have like plaster casts of famous sculptures so you could go right. and see yeah, or, yeah so this would be the antithesis of that right um but yeah uh, um I don't know, is it is it like authenticity porn? It, that's, I don't know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of the discussion we had with Lisa Gittleman about right. the allographic versus the autographic. Right. So do you know this distinction, Martin, between, yeah. yeah, okay, so.
0: Yeah, so this is yeah the the intensification of the autographic.
1: Meaning, right, the, yeah. the notion that uh, the, the, the thing that actually lives in a place versus right. the allographic right. being the right. thing that potentially lives anywhere. Um, okay, well, uh, uh, I'll continue to battle for the Browd again. Uh, <laughs> I'm not uh, against it. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> you just think it could be flushed out of toilet and it would still be a <laughs> Browdigan library.
2: I'm against it. it. It's precious. Yes is yeah, it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I, I, I'm yeah. not sure I'm against it.
1: No, Go I think you're allowed to be on, against it. Come on, make a stand. Well, yeah. I did. Yeah. And yeah. I took it back. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. it sort of depends what you mean by the word precious, right? So <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I kind of agree it is precious, yeah. but you know, Gollum had a point. My precious. <laughs> um, okay. And we're in there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good, uh, yeah, yes. unless you guys want to do Gollum imitations too. We could, uh, well,
0: we do. We did do the one with the Beckett at the end so we could do all do Precious. All will do my Precious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All
1: right. One, all right. two, three.
0: Precious. Precious.
1: Precious. Oh, I like that. It sounds like a musical. Um, okay, so recall this book is the brainchild of uh, John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with Public Books and is recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. I like think a very beautiful song. Uh, sound editing is by Anil Tripathi in the Anthropology Department. And production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Matthew Schratz from English. Um, we always want to hear from you with our your comments criticisms or suggestions for future episodes you can email us directly or connect us via social media and our website uh, recallthisbook.org. and finally if you enjoyed today's show please uh, be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast and you may be interested in checking out past episodes including topics like opiate addiction. Minimalism, both literary and uh, aesthetic, um, as well as home design minimalism, Uh, old and new media, and also an interview with Madeline Miller, author of Circe, which is a retelling of some episodes of The Odyssey from below or from the side. Um, And upcoming episodes are likely, we're still finalizing the second half Mm -hmm. of season one, but the likely upcoming episodes are going to include a conversation with. I think you can call him a living legend, Samuel Delaney, science fiction author, uh, discussion of animals, poetical and otherwise, with the poet David Ferry, who we heard a lot about today, and biologist E.O. Wilson. Um, and also, a recall this book first, a collaboration with Harvard's Mahindra Humanities Center. And in that live episode, you will hear me arguing about distraction with a uh, Bard professor marina von zoylen uh i perform a monty python monologue about word association football and marina talks about her brain scan which is just as scary as that sounds um in any case martin thank you so much for coming today
2: thanks for having me it was really fun
1: it was very fun and uh thank you all for listening
0: thanks